0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm your host, Chris Toomey, and I'm joined today by Daniel Coulson, developer in our New York studio. Daniel, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Chris. I'm happy to be here. We've talked at a number of different events, but frankly, I feel like we haven't gotten to talk enough, so uh, we're going to take a few minutes right now and chat about some things. In particular, one of the topics that I would love to dig into is the fact that you have taken over maintaining our FactoryBot and FactoryBot Rails Gems, which I think at this point are our two most popular open source projects. So how's that going?
1: Well, I, I guess I've uh, uh, officially taken them over. It's You heard it here first. <laughs> was that I, not true? No, I think it's basically true now at this point. It wasn't like an intentional move, but I had been working on Factory Bot a little bit mm-hmm. before I joined ThoughtBot and had some ideas about things that would be interesting to build. And when I joined here, I realized that no one was really actively working on it. Josh Clayton, who had been maintaining it for a bunch of years... I uh, ended up getting busy being a development director and, and doing all sorts of other things. It's got a bunch going on. <laughs> and the issues had started to accumulate a bit. The pull requests had started to accumulate a bit. So I've been spending most of my Fridays, since I joined about six or seven months ago, diving into the library, trying to resolve as many of the open issues and things as I can, and getting a plan of action for a 5.0 release, which is pretty close, And then brainstorming for the future.
0: (laughs) Brainstorming for the future. Well, I will say my very minimal experience with open source is that it is a largely thankless endeavor with a good amount of noise in terms of issues and things that are coming in, as opposed to like actually being able to dig in and and do the work. So in the spirit of that, thank you for the work that you're doing on a gem that again, like the, it is incredibly widely used, but within every single ThoughtBot project it is so core to how we think about testing and how we work. I can't imagine working without it In fact, we're doing more and more JavaScript these days. And one of our developers internally is like, I looked around and didn't see a factory bot for JavaScript that I liked. So maybe I'm writing one of those. And I'm like, oh, goodness. Yeah, I saw that. (laughs) I saw that. Uh, This is in no way an announcement, by the way, internet (laughs) audience of a project. This is just some people on a Friday hacking around with a thing. But it could very much go in that direction because we really do believe in the ideas here. But yeah, so thank you, Daniel.
1: Well, thanks for thanking me. (laughs) You're welcome.
0: So it's interesting, you described the process as like you came in and the first thing that you sort of needed to do was scan through and triage and clean up and catch up on old issues. What was your process like on that?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I feel like I spent a good amount of time reading and rereading issues, trying to figure out which issues were common and github i think now has this this way of like linking up related issues i think
0: they're using the machine learning which is very exciting i assume i don't know how else that could work so
1: but now i sort of like wish that i had that a little sooner because that's Mm -hmm. essentially what i was doing is trying trying to figure out you know there may be 20 30 something open issues and 20 30 something open prs on both factory bot and factory bot rails a lot of the stuff in factory bot rails was actually related to code and factory bot so there's there was a lot of kind of like shuffling around issues consolidating things so that i could see what actually needed to be done and then i think kind of the next thing was just to go through and, and tackle any that were fairly easy mm-hmm. just so that it seemed like not
0: quite as much work start making some progress and move yeah. in any direction as long as it's vaguely forward sort of thing
1: exactly exactly beyond that it's been trying to be really good about keeping on top of any new issues that come in because I find it's much easier to deal with a problem right away and like when the person is there and ready to communicate with you whereas if an issue has been sitting around for Mm. a couple years and you have a question that person might not be around anymore to even answer your question so you kind of it can be hard to figure out what the issue even was Um, in some cases I've had to just close things because I didn't know what the issue was and Mm -hmm. the person was no longer around to respond.
0: Right. There's a wonderful blog post that I saw a while back and I may be misattributing this and or misnaming it, but I think it was something like being an open source gardener by Steve Klabnik talking about, uh, again, I think I'm getting most of these uh, details right, but it was talking about him coming into Rails and trying to help out with the overwhelming volume of pull requests and issues and things that were coming into that project and just trying to come in and help. And he had actually a pretty specific process that he was using to guide how he's going through, how he's reviewing issues, that same sort of cross-linking that you were talking about, Mm -hmm. the human machine learning, as it were. But yeah that's it 's an interesting one for anyone that 's in a similar boat, so we can link that up but it 's a complicated thing and my again very minimal experience I have like a couple of vim plugins online that got surprisingly popular, and at this point i don 't have a ton of additional functionality that I want to add, so mostly my job is to say no right and ideally do it in as tactful of a way as possible. but have you found a similar thing where a lot of a lot of what you 're doing now is just saying mm I can see why you would say that, but no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to go in that direction.
1: Yeah, no, that's a really interesting point. If you say yes to everything, you'll end up with a library that has too much. It has things that a lot of people aren't using. It will probably lack direction. And then you'll be maintaining all those things for as long as you're maintaining the project. So yeah, you, you do have to be thoughtful about what the project actually is and what the limits are of the project. There's definitely some things... That I've closed and said, actually, we're gonna go in a, a different direction here. I think I'm getting better at that. I feel like the first time I had to close somebody's PR took me like three weeks to get up the courage to to close it. (laughs) I
0: definitely sat on and waited around like, uh, er, I really owe a response to this. And I'm pretty sure I know that the answer is going to be no, but I don't want to say it today. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe I'll come back to this.
1: Yeah. Cause you know that somebody took the time to actually open a PR and like, I'm Mm -hmm. so grateful to people who open even the PRs that end up getting closed. Like that contribution is still valuable. I want to see that.
0: And you want to encourage it as well. And, you don't yeah, want people to come and see that you close every... Yeah, yeah.
1: You, you know, I'd love for everybody listening right now to be contributing stuff to, to Factory Bot.
0: Just know that Daniel may uh, bring down the hammer and say no. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I may say no, but... But yeah, keep the issues and the pull requests coming.
0: It is such a delicate line to walk of trying to be welcoming and and keep this sort of community. And open source is a wonderful means of building software, but it's also incredibly complicated. And there's the subtlety of measuring someone's submission. If someone's put up a pull request and saying, thank you for the work, and I appreciate what you've done here. But for reasons that are perhaps slightly outside your view, or I think one of the things is often folks don't consider the maintenance cost, because Mm -hmm. once you merge that in, like you have somehow sort of backed your way into being the maintainer of these two very popular gems, and that means any code that you take on is, is sort of yours. It's your responsibility. This other person most likely will not be there when, unfortunately, that addition that they made conflicts with something else or has a problem or has a bug in it. That's yours to manage, Moving yours being Daniel. Uh, right, right. And that's something to be considered. So it is, it's a complicated and subtle world.
1: Yeah, I think, like anything, it's about communicating what you're trying to do. So if somebody opens a pull request and it's going to end up getting closed, you know, thank them for their effort and then explain why you're not going to end up merging that. You know, what, mm-hmm. what is the reasoning behind it? If you communicate what what your intentions are, usually people are all right with it. I haven't actually had anybody, I don't think, since I've been working on Factory Bot, Factory Bot Rails say, like, why'd you close my PR? How dare you? Oh,
0: people that's all have awesome. been really good about it. That's great. I certainly prefer to hear that. I'm definitely in the same boat where I do try to give as much of the why, uh, not yeah. just to no, we're not going to go in this direction, but the the reasoning, the here's the direction that we are thinking of, or here's the way that we view this project and why we think your suggestion is out of scope. But I find that that means that every answer takes me more time than I would like. Like it's say it's a couple of paragraphs, but I end up editing and rewriting. And And again, my support burden for the very few things that I have out there is very minimal. So I can only imagine how that scales and, I wonder if I were part of more actively used and actively issued and PR'd open source. Like, I couldn't maintain that same level, so I wonder what that... There's, like, the canned responses on GitHub as a potential answer to this, because I do end up writing similar things each time. Like, I end almost every single I'm going to close this with, but please feel free to comment or reopen if you think I've missed something. Right? No one's ever done that, oddly. <laughs> no one's ever been like, you're wrong, you didn't understand. But I do end every single one with an almost like, I'm
1: sorry, but... Uh, Do you write your pull request comments and issue comments on GitHub? Because I was thinking if you were writing them in an editor, you could have a shortcut that paces out some of the common sentences
0: a Vim mode for GitHub pull requests and things. Yeah. My support burden has never gotten to the level that I've thought of additional automation. There's an episode a, a couple back, actually the one where Ben Orenstein, former ThoughtBotter was on, where he was sort of, he was asking where I'm at on my level of personal automation and Vimming and things like that. And I've attempted to sort of chill out as I get a bit older in terms of, I've seen a lot of the little side projects that I've built. And then after I have built them, which was fun and an enjoyable thing to do, I don't end up using them that much. So my threshold for automation and things that I want to bring into the Vim world has gotten that much higher. I want to make sure like, this is a thing that I'm doing every day. I know that I'm going to keep doing it. And I'm certain that the thing that I'm going to build here will be useful uh, in the general case. But I could imagine if my support burden were higher, that I would, I would definitely consider that. That reminds me of, just like doing
1: client work and validating what we're going to build based on user feedback like you don't want to spend a lot of time building the wrong thing right
0: uh, yeah so. i guess it is actually a very pretty direct parallel there of like what is there a smaller version that i can do can i get like is there 10 percent that i can do that will allow me to validate this and yep. Um, and actually, as as we were talking about all of the other open source stuff and responding to issues and deciding what to work on within an open source project, I was thinking how much that also parallels the work that we do. For sure. In terms of interacting with clients. And every single day on every single project, I get uh, like, uh, could we, what if the dropdown were fancier in this way? And I'm like, we could do that. We can do just about anything, but we have to consider the cost. How much time, like, is this the most important thing, or should we, in fact, be building that reporting engine that you said? and the parallels between those sort of conversations are really interesting in my mind. Absolutely. Well, I want to shift gears just a little bit now that we've been talking about managing the the open source project. I figure we should take a step back and for anyone that might not be aware, what exactly is FactoryBot and Rails? What what are these things that we're talking about here, Daniel?
1: Right, so FactoryBot is a fixtures replacement and fixtures would be like test fixtures. So data that you want to use in your tests. And factory bot can solve some problems some pain points that people had with fixtures specifically around mystery guests so with fixtures you'll often define like in a rails project you might define a a yaml file with a bunch of test fixtures that you're going to use in your different tests but that kind of distances the data that you're using in the test from the test itself so you might look at a test and kind of why am I testing that the user has this particular email? Like, where did that email come from? Um, It makes it kind of hard to read the test because the aspects of what you're testing aren't right there in the test. They're somewhere else, and you have to go look there.
0: You mentioned the phrase mystery guest there. So that idea of why are we testing against the specific string user6 at gmail.com, where did that come from? That would be the mystery guest in that situation where we're working with fixtures. Right.
1: So FactoryBot allows us to create the object right there in the test, but... We don't necessarily have to specify all of the attributes of that object. FactoryBot will build the attributes for us based on these factory definitions that we define in in other files. In our actual test, we'll only specify the attributes that we actually care about for that test. But we'll still end up with a valid object because these factories are, are giving us the other attributes that we don't necessarily care about in those tests.
0: I believe so much in the the ideas of avoiding the mystery guess and making our tests clear and self contained, and it's interesting to me how much resistance we see on that. It's actually almost to the point of a a meme where, uh, as a Thoughtbotter, if I go onto a project and it's a team that knows Thoughtbot, they're like, "Yeah, yeah, we're so interested in, in things and talking and best practices," and but we'll probably use fixtures and let on this project in our respect right. test. And I'm like. Cool. Well, at least we've had the conversation up front, but it's to the point that like this is um, a thing that apparently ThoughtBotters say all the time. But it's interesting to me because I, when I come into a spec and everything is clear and it's there and I can follow it, we have other abstractions that we can use. We can extract methods. We can use things like factories. But all of the important bits are there in the test. And so often I'll open a spec and it's just like, things should be bar. Right. Why Why should it be bar? how did that happen and especially when you also work with things like nested let blocks or nested subject describe etc all of this Mm -hmm. implicit it's essentially they're globals within your test context they're just coming out of nowhere and you're suddenly referencing the user that you never created that we don't know where it came from so it's it's always interesting to me that there is actually pushback on this because it seems seems pretty straightforward i like the factory bot world
1: Yeah, yeah. I often refer people to the the let's not blog post, which explains some of the problems with let and, and subject. And I think that extends also to like before blocks, running a bunch of code before all of your tests. Sam Pippin, I think, is one of the RSpec maintainers. I think at
0: this point he's the yeah the core the lead of the project. That's right. I think that was a recent update, but yes, he's he's yeah, been involved in it for a long time, and I think now he is the the head of the project.
1: He just posted something on Twitter asking people about some of their pain points using mm. RSpec, and a bunch of people posted you know about getting into a mess of you know nested contexts and describe blocks, and also like a mess of lets and subjects. I have to say, when I first sort of discovered let and subject, I was like, oh, I can dry up my tests. I'm going to use these Mm -hmm. everywhere. And then once you start to get a file that's long enough, it's, what do I have available again? (laughs) What data is in here? What state Um, are we in? And then if you use the bang version of it, let exclamation point, Then you can end up in your test and you're like, why are there seven users already in the database here? Like, where do they come from?
0: I'm actually, I'm guessing I knew this at some point, but I avoid them so thoroughly that I don't know the difference between the let and let bang. So uh, can you, can can you clarify that?
1: Let is lazy, so it won't evaluate the block that you give it until you actually refer to the thing. Whereas let bang will evaluate that block immediately. So like, it's, it's always available. So if you need to put stuff in your database ahead of the test, you could use let bang, and it will it will be there.
0: For some reason, that like that just layers on as uncomfortable as I am with let let bang. Now, like I've always been like, at least it's lazy, and like we only use it if we're using it. Uh, I still don't, I still don't want it. But I'm all right. So there's a let bang. Good to know.
1: <laughs> yeah, and and I loved it at one point, and then yeah. I started to feel the pain and.
0: I think there's sort of a an underlying theme around duplication or wanting the desire to dry up code and the fact that that's been such a core ideal to programming that I think one of the themes that I see at ThoughtBot is a little bit more forgiveness of duplication in test code particular, and frankly, in general code. I think this is a historically, for a long time, people have been very on wanting to remove duplication as much as possible. But more and more I've heard voices, particularly like Sandy Metz talking about duplication is better than the wrong abstraction. So Absolutely. feel free to duplicate for a little while. I and mean, when you've got three or four of the same thing going on, then start to abstract it out. But we don't need to be removing all duplication all the time. And I think tests are an example where actually, like comparing the two different versions, the deduplicated code where I pulled everything out into lets and subjects and things like that, versus a version where I've extracted maybe a method or two and given things names, but mostly there is a bit of duplication between them. I vastly prefer that duplicated version because my ability to come in and interact, understand that spec in totality just by reading it and add an additional spec or modify that one, it's just so much higher. I think that's the thing that we're not talking about when we have these arguments about let and subject and factory bot even, is what if we were okay with a little bit of duplication in our tests? That's probably fine.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Let's duplicate stuff. And as you said, it's not necessarily just tests either. It can be expensive to pull out the wrong abstraction because later you might find that you need to change one little aspect in one of the three things that use this shared piece of code. And then what do you do? You Maybe you put a conditional inside there for that one case, and then you down the line end up with five conditionals in there. Yep. And at that point, maybe this is not a shared thing. You actually have three separate code paths, and it would have been a lot cleaner to just keep them as three separate code paths. So yeah, I think that's especially true in tests. Like, you have to think about whether the things are likely to change independently,
0: And accept that you likely can't answer that question with absolute certainty with the information that you have at the current moment. But I I think that is the right question, but also recognize like, you know, we've gotten that answer wrong most of the time we've asked (laughs) the question of ourselves. We never expected the software to change in this way. And yet here we are. Users (laughs) can have multiple profiles now. Cool. That'll be a fun thing to change throughout the entire application. That is a really good point.
1: It is so hard to predict what's going to happen next in any software.
0: Yeah. And I mean, ideally with like agile and with all of those sort of considerations, we've accepted that at a project planning level. But I think the same sort of considerations can happen within the software and say like, I don't know, we probably shouldn't make a fancy abstracted version of this that then we get to reuse everywhere. That, that'll that be great. And often, I think we just don't know the answer yet. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor. This episode of The Bike Shed is sponsored by OneMonth.com. As you know, we here at Thoughtbot believe in the power of online education. Did you know that 50% of the best paying jobs call for the ability to code? OneMonth.com is the absolute best place to learn how to code in just one month. Perfect for those who are starting out. Their courses have helped over 60,000 students go from knowing zero about coding to building programs in languages like Python, Ruby, and JavaScript. OneMonth.com graduates have gone on to get jobs at prestigious startups like Airbnb, Instagram, and Spotify. OneMonth.com's courses are easy to follow with step-by-step video tutorials, instructor-led with weekly assignments reviewed by your instructor, and results-driven with each student graduating the course with a portfolio of projects to show prospective employers, as well as a certification of completion. Are you interested in taking your career to the next level? For a limited time, head to OneMonth.com slash TheBikeShed to get 10% off any coding course. Again, that's OneMonth.com slash TheBikeShed to get 10% off any coding course. Thanks to OneMonth.com for supporting this episode of The Bike Shed and for supporting online education. I want to share a particular example and and get your thoughts because I don't know if everyone agrees on this one even within ThoughtBot. But again, I'm, I'm more open to duplication within the tests. And one of the ways that I'm open to duplication is i will often not reference a translation so i won't reference the translation key i will hard code the string that i'm looking for Oh, interesting so i will duplicate the text of that translation value from the en locale in my tests just because it's more clear to me like find the delete button and it's the string delete as opposed to page.controller.something.context.delete like there's just there's a lot more noise and indirection there and so how often are we changing our translations anyway, particularly for the delete button? Maybe not that much. So I opt typically to actually inline the string literal there.
1: That's interesting. Yeah, I think that is not everybody at ThoughtBot is doing that. So I'd be, I'd be curious, like, if we have a consensus, maybe this is something we can bring up on... Um one of the, maybe the guide's repo or something. Mm. Although it's it's dangerous to open a, a PR in the guide's repo because if it's 50-50, good luck.
0: Well, then we have someone, uh, I feel like Joe gets to make the decision in it that case be, and then so. we just do the thing. Because if it's 50-50, then obviously it's not a big deal. right? Like, that's the yeah. most important thing is when you get down into stylistic things like that, I remember a long long time ago or actually i feel like i might have even been here for more than one is it single quotes or is it double quotes in ruby files i feel like we've at least changed that twice in my time i was staunchly in the single quotes camp no question about it my logic was well double quotes are almost like a method we have tons of one-line methods in ruby and you can do stuff inside of a double quote whereas a single quote is just some static data so i feel like they're different enough that i want to keep that differentiation I lost for anyone keeping track on the internet. Uh, <laughs> Thoughtbot is very clear on the fact that we are double quotes and it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't is not matter. important. It is perfectly fine. I, I was staunchly opposed to it, but I also was, I, even at the time, I was like, all right, cool. That's what we're doing now. Because I, I do believe strongly in the idea that consistency is more important than what I believe to be the slightly more correct version. Having worked with them for this long, I actually have just come around to, actually, it's nice that it's just the same thing and I don't have to change it depending on like oh this string now needs interpolation i need to change the quotes around it but
1: yeah i i think these conversations they can go on and on and mm-hmm. as you said it doesn't really matter which one you use and it's sort of ends up being not the most interesting conversation it's like white space which quotes you're going to use trailing commas there's certain things that like i can see the arguments and aren't necessarily the most important thing i think this is was it standard RB that people are talking about? That's supposed to just yes. It's just opinionated. It just does the right thing, and as you far don't as just... I understand it, standard
0: mm-hmm. RB is a configured, locked-in version of Rubocop. So it's it's doing the same things as Rubocop, but it's got a little bit nicer handling around fixing. But it is still a Rubocop. Like it's a layer on top of Rubocop, as opposed to a true um, right. formatter.
1: My impression was that it was RuboCop, but you can't configure it.
0: Yes. <laughs> if, if it's you... RuboCop, and we don't talk about it.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it could save us some time.
0: Oh, yeah. we're Actually, we're using it on at least one project in Boston right now. And as far as I can tell, everyone's like, yeah, that was obviously the right thing to do. Nice. Because none of the things that we might argue about and might try and configure are more important than just having a thing and having it work.
1: Right. But, yeah, I agree it would be nice to just have a thing, formats the code. We never have to talk about it.
0: We can focus
1: on other interesting problems.
0: Yeah, the real stuff. This is actually a topic that came up at lunch today. We were talking about auto-formatters, And unfortunately, Ruby is sort of lagging behind some of the other worlds. And I'm spending a lot of time in JavaScript and other languages that do have a a clear answer to formatting at this point, uh, particularly prettier in the JavaScript world. Mm -hmm. And coming back to Ruby and having to manually format and determine like, oh, do we leave off the optional parens here or do we put them on? Do we leave off the optional braces or do we put them on? And Ruby actually has such an interesting syntax that there are a lot of different ways to write the same thing. And I've just, I've so enjoyed working on projects where I can just type a syntactically, any syntactically valid version of the code that I want and just hit enter. And I even, like, I've noticed myself, I have a certain, like, I'll just step back and kind of, like, point at the screen as the auto-formatter does the thing, nice. which is a nonsense thing, and I'm surprised <laughs> that I'm saying it on the internet radio now. But but I, I enjoy the fact that I don't have to do that that much, that it's like a little, yeah, yeah, fix it for me. <laughs> and I get really sad when I come back to Ruby and it doesn't have it. There's one that I've seen called Rufo, you? fo Ruby formatter, I assume is what that's short for, or rufio Who can say? I would say it's not opinionated enough. It didn't get there, but interesting. Such is life. Have you worked with any of the the more like you do not decide what your code looks like? It decide like prettier or any of those?
1: Not much. No, not much. They're fantastic. Once you try
0: them, oh man, (laughs) it's a whole different world. But. We talked briefly about what FactoryBot is and where it gets used. So it's replacing fixtures, but it also has a number of niceties around, oh, I want a variant of this active record object. So I want a user, but I want a user with these permissions. Right. And so FactoryBot has a mechanism that's called traits that allow you to define and name a set of values for attributes. So you can say like user with admin access and that sets admin true and maybe some other flag or whatever it happens to be and then you can say create colon user comma colon with admin access mm-hmm. so traits are awesome i love the, the like very much in the ruby spirit they read very fluidly it reads pretty much like i as a human would say to another human how i want the thing to work sure but one of the things that i've found is i've been on projects lately that make heavy use of uh, rails enums Yep. So active record enum specifically. And I find that I'm defining a trait for every single one of the enum values. So say we have an enum like state and it's active, archived, deleted, pending, or, you know, each of those. I want a named trait for each of them. I end up handwriting this, but is there some magic that we could do to just make that work in that classic Rails sense?
1: yes. I'm glad you're bringing that up. That is the thing that we are working on.
0: Really? That's so exciting. I tried it one afternoon, and I do not know enough Ruby to work on uh, that project. Let me be clear about that.
1: Yeah. So you can ask. I think the method is define traits on an active record object. So you can look at what traits are defined and do some fun stuff with automatically defining them. Traits there. Is that on the active record side? There was an open issue for a long time about that. I think maybe two or three years ago, even somebody brought this up. And then I ended up pairing on it with Lance, who is a new developer in our Rally office. Welcome, Lance. Welcome, Lance. So we started in on that, and I haven't picked it up since then. So maybe either Lance will want to continue pairing on it or somebody else, if anybody else wants to pair on it. <laughs> That's awesome, though. I, yeah, I mean, I would be interested as well. But it's it's definitely a thing that can work. And it'll probably be in... I'm guessing 5.1.
0: Which you're working on the the 5.0 release you said, correct? Exactly, yeah. That's what we're we're heading towards now. So what uh, what sort of things are in scope for the 5.0 release? A lot of it is actually
1: just cleaning up stuff mm-hmm. that's just that's been in there that didn't need to be in there anymore. I removed support for the end of life Ruby and Rails versions. Removed a bunch of deprecation warnings, things like that. So that always makes me happy, deleting stuff that we don't need anymore. The thing that I'm kind of the most excited about, but I'm also kind of the most scared about because it's technically a breaking change. There is a setting right now called use parent strategy, and by default, it is false. Basically, when you're creating objects and they have associations, you need to create the associations as well and and save those along with your object Mm -hmm. when you're building objects so is this for instance
0: using build stubbed not even build stubbed okay just build
1: build stubbed actually we can talk about that after it it (laughs) it kind of does the right thing it doesn't create anything It, it gotcha it doesn't put anything into the database but build you might think, just builds all the objects. Um, I
0: would. I would think that, yeah.
1: But it actually creates all the associations.
0: I guess that makes sense, because if you attempt to save the record that you're actually interacting with, but the other associations are not saved yet, then Active Record's going to yell at you about that.
1: I think, depending on how you define the associations, it might do the right thing. And, or, and, yeah, autosave
0: and, in that case for the other records.
1: But one problem is, if you're validating presence of... IDs, association IDs, like foreign key IDs, that is. The IDs won't exist because nothing's saved. So you'll end up building an object that is not fully valid if you build everything. So there there's some quirks there, but we introduced this setting because a lot of people did expect build to build things all the way through. We introduced this use parent strategy setting. So when you use build, it will indeed build everything. And you just have to watch out for if you're relying on the things having IDs, you can't use build anymore.
0: And so the presenting goal here is just to avoid touching the database in those cases. Is that right? Okay.
1: Now you can also use build stubbed if you want to avoid touching the database.
0: Right. I'll be honest. This is another thing that I might be a little bit heretical on within ThoughtBot is I'll reach for create. Earlier than perhaps is recommended sure. by some unit testing advocates, although there's a small little consideration in my in my mind that when I'm working with an active record object, calling it a unit test is already kind of a that's Fair it's point. a very big unit when I inherit from application record. I'm getting a lot <laughs> coming along with that, yeah, and so I'm more open to like i don't know, I'll just save this to the database. It's not like the database is pretty fast actually these days I like databases for sure,
1: yeah, I guess. It kind of works at the beginning of a project, but when you start to get thousands of tests and it's taking yeah. you know many minutes to run, I guess you mm-hmm. can start paralyzing things at, at that point.
0: Yeah, I mean, ideally not have to do that. And a fast test suite is super useful. I do use build stubbed a lot, but when I'm starting, there are particular active record level things. I guess my actual goal would typically be to pull things out of active record objects and to put them into other quote-unquote right. service objects, which is a phrase that doesn't actually yes. mean anything, but it's... Yeah, I'm
1: all for... For pulling stuff out of models it's very easy to end up with humongous models in active record and yeah there's already a lot built into them so If you put all of your business logic in there as well, it can be pretty overwhelming. So yeah, lots of smaller objects is a nice thing.
0: Right. And those tend to be like they're not going to touch the database because they don't know how. And so I lean towards that. I will build stubbed from time to time, particularly if I have active record objects that I'm using in, say, a view spec or some other context. But when I'm working with the objects directly or if I'm doing query tests. That's the other one where I'm like, I actually would really like to round trip through the database to make sure my query object does the thing that I want. And I find that that's a lot of the code that I have been writing over the past couple of years as, as I think about it out loud. Mm-hmm. But still, build stubbed is fantastic. And, and avoiding the database when we can, I'm just, if we're being honest, I'm a little less finicky about that sure. than I may have been earlier on in my career.
1: I think that makes sense. Build stub it not only avoids the database, it will yell and fail. If you do try to call methods that touch the database, which is one difference between build stub and build, but you do pay a little performance price for that. Like it has to define a bunch of extra methods that raise Hmm. one of the advantages maybe of flipping the use parent strategy option from false to true is that build now becomes a little bit better for performance. If that's what you need, if you don't care about the thing, having IDs, then build can work fine.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Now that you say it, I, I realize that I actually, I'm either on the create side of the aisle or the build stubbed. Right. But I find myself very rarely at the build level, which is why some of what you're describing like, huh, that's interesting. I haven't really thought about that or heard about that.
1: Yeah. No, no. That's an interesting point. I'll have to ponder that more.
0: <laughs> well, I <laughs> hope I didn't just sideswipe you and now you have I... another thing to think about while maintaining <laughs> no, no, this project.
1: I'll say I actually often don't use Factory bot if I am testing a method that only cares about one single attribute. Mm-hmm. i'll often just build the object with dot new
0: so user dot new instead of build user
1: exactly exactly so it's only where i actually need the object to be a valid object mm-hmm. uh, the moment i start like fighting with oh i need to set this oh and i also need to set this oh and i also need to set this then i'll definitely use factory bot but if it's really just oh i only need to set the user's email and then my test relies on that email being there. Often I'll just create the object with new, which is a little faster. You're paying an overhead for going through some extra calls.
0: It's interesting to hear you say that because I think I've heard Josh Clayton say similar things. He might even have a blog post on the topic, um, which is funny as two maintainers of FactoryBot are like, "Eh, maybe you don't need FactoryBot all the time. I will say I, I end up on the other side of things and it In my mind, I think of it similarly to the single quotes, double quotes argument of, I just want to have a a consistent way that I, and particularly a team that I'm working with, will do this. It sounds like you have a very cohesive set of logic around when you use .new on the active record object versus create versus build or build stubbed. But ideally, and particularly when I'm working with teams that I'm, I'm trying to mentor and, and guide along, I want to narrow down the options that we have to think through. But again, if we're being honest, like I kind of like having less options to pick from on a day-to-day basis as well and being able to just do the work and focus on the things that are more you know business-facing. But... I say that as if it's a judgment. I do not think this is a. am ju- just like, huh, this is why I do it that way. But it's interesting that both you and Josh say the other side or say that they you know, take it in a different direction. I trust the things that the two of you are saying very much.
1: <laughs> it's, it's a great point, though. Like You can just use create all the time and not have to think about any of these things. And you would never run into any of the gotchas with this use parent strategy option, you can't go wrong with create. It's it's going to work. Well, except when your test week gets too <laughs> long, just, which I do agree. Like I, exactly. I absolutely
0: use build stubbed, but now I've narrowed my field of choices down to create or build stubbed. That's right. basically the two that I use. I use the pair variants as well, create pair or create list or things like that. But the goal is to narrow it down as much as possible and have as few options to pick from considering how many other decisions I have to make throughout the day.
1: No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and of course, you can always try to go back and if your test suite is really slow. I don't know what you do at that
0: point. You know, Maybe swap all your creates for build and see what see what fails. Or I have actually done that on client projects where I'm like, you folks are creating a lot of objects and we're in a view spec. So let's just see. Let's just check what happens if I switch this to build stubbed. Right. And then there's actually two interesting considerations of you definitely should not be mutating the object in a view. So this better work. And if right. it doesn't, we're going to look at that. We're not just going to say, "Oh well, I guess we have to use create." We're going to say, "What the heck are we doing in this view here? That's actually that be happening." <laughs> but then also, in most cases, it does just work, and I'm able to take a lot out and actually reduce the time down that way. I've also seen a lot of feature specs that could be model specs or view specs. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a heck of a win when I can be like, oh, you know what, we can just, you're not actually doing anything here. You're not clicking any buttons or going anywhere. You're just rendering a page and showing that the text is on the screen. Do I have a testing method for you?
1: Nice, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, the feature specs can, can be a pain point
0: especially with a javascript driver which most of the time folks just at this point at the top of the file javascript all the things which oh, is true because right. often on the apps that we're building have more and more javascript so it just makes sense to turn that I, again In the like i don't want to have to think about it on a per spec basis is this one using fancy javascript or not but so as a result the, that's a costly default to be in so that's a place where i sort of take the other side of the aisle definitely Let's see, anything else you want to cover? I feel like we've covered a whole bunch of fun stuff. I went on some diatribes, lots of opinions. I'm feeling good. (laughs) Yeah, it's good to have opinions. It It is. Strong opinions, loosely loosely held seems to be a a theme here. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, Daniel, with that, I think we have covered just about enough of the world of open source, factory bot, testing in general, plenty of opinions scattered throughout, which is a lot of fun. So, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And where can folks find you on the internet if they want to keep up with uh, what you're working on? Probably Twitter. My handle is dodeca daniel, which is complicated. <laughs> we'll put that in the show notes so that uh, yeah. we don't have to try and spell that. It's vaguely phonetic, I think. But It's the number 12
1: because I was a 12-tone composer in a, uh, we'll call it a past life or something. <laughs>
0: Anyway, All right, we'll have to have you uh, back on another time in the future <laughs> to talk through more of what that is about. But sure. uh, yes, we'll definitely include that in the show notes, as well as links to FactoryBot and FactoryBot Rails. And folks can uh, watch as you comment and manage all of those projects moving forward. So again, thank you, Daniel. Thanks, Chris. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the others, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or share it on Twitter. And if you have any feedback for this or any of the other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore Bike Shed, or you can reach me at Chris Toomey on Twitter, or you can email us at hosts at shed.fm. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.